Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 30 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have Tim Stevenson from the School of Calisthenics. How are you doing today, Tim? Yeah, I'm very good. Thank you. Thanks for your time and having me on. My absolute pleasure. Um, Apologise offline for calling you Tim Anderson in uh, all of the promotion for the uh, podcast, but um, we'll get that one out of the way. Why do you do what you do, Tim? Oh, crikey, that's a big question. Um, well, currently I have a number of different hats within S&C. Uh, one of them is with the School of Calisthenics um, as, a, as co-founder, um, CEO, and um, yeah, probably head, head of head of product development um, within within our team there. Um, and then I also am a, I've got a consultancy contract with British Para Swimming as their lead S&C coach, um, which I've been with that organisation for four years now since 2016. Um, and yeah, still have a, a couple of athletes that I look after on a, a sort of a one-to-one basis as well. So um, why I do what I do, that, that is, I've kind of got a foot in two camps, I guess. The, the, the calisthenics thing is a, is a bit more of a general population fitness, um, health enthusiast type um, audience that we're trying to serve with, with better access to calisthenics and progressive bodyweight training. And yeah, still um, my real heart, uh, the stuff that I enjoy around SNC and performance training is in, is in sport and um, athletic performance. So I feel very fortunate in the, in the fact that I get to do both of those two things. And in terms of, uh, this is a question I ask everyone, so I'm not sure how much work you currently do with the youth athletes, but uh, if you have a philosophy with calisthenics, strength and conditioning, whatever you want to call it, uh, what is that philosophy? And does it change when you're working with, different populations so for example your para guys your uh general fitness people or for example youth athletes yeah good question philosophy you could do a whole hour on philosophy um i i'm i'm i can take it all back down to the the, the real basics and uh, uh, coaching for me is about people and communication um and i think regardless of of who it is that you're coaching who's still in front of you your ability to be an effective coach comes down to your ability to communicate in a way in which is going to create a relationship build rapport and effectively a response um, from the person that you're coaching so one of the things that I've always loved about my coaching careers has been quite diverse I did five years in the Nottingham Trent University leading the TAS athletes and high performance squads there and during that time I think I probably worked with maybe 30 different sports because TAS you can have everything from wakeboarding golf horse riding and then you get your traditional football, hockey, rugby type sports and athlete, yeah, athletes as well. Um, but I really loved the, the process of having a group of squads coming in. So it might be have, might have eight athletes in a day or four performance squads back to back and netball being first, followed by women's football, followed by men's rugby. And you have to be able to coach and communicate to each of those different athletes differently. You have to respect their culture of their sport, the sorts of people that play those sports. Um, and, and for me, coaching is about like, how, yeah, as, as I, said before, I said before, how do you get that person to get on board with what you want them to, to do? How do you lead them towards making an improvement in themselves and enhancing their performance? And if you, t- if you teach a netball squad like you coach a, a rugby squad, you aren't going to get anywhere. And those, those athletes aren't going to step up and perform for you. They aren't going to go and do things that they don't really want to do because they're difficult or they feel uncomfortable doing um, so I think those interpersonal skills, the, the, 
uh, emotional intelligence of training. That's kind of where my philosophy is based. And then if I'm going to go and coach youth athletes, it just becomes different tools. You just use different methods, but the principle is the same. How am I going to create an environment and a, um, let's say a performance, because I think coaching is a performance. If you're giving the required amount of energy to get engagement and build intensity or whatever it might be, you can't go in there like just flat and can't really bother. You've got to go in there with energy. So, and my wife has seen me coach for, for pretty much my, my career. And, and I used to be a scuba diving instructor, right? So my job was to stand in front of people and help them to have a good time. Um, and I still take that into, into coaching. Now, as you walk into a room and you've got 20 kids in front of you, well, you need to be somebody who 20 kids want to spend time with because if you're not, then they aren't going to do what you want them to do. And your ideas have better be pretty interesting that those kids of that age group want to have a good time and they want to enjoy it. Nobody, regardless of whatever age they are, enjoys training that's boring. Like, so why would we as coaches give boring sessions? That's not our job. Um, I don't know if that's philosophy. That's kind of philosophy of presentation rather than philosophy of movement. I guess the other angle of that is I just think people should move more. If you can move in more ways, you have more movement options and whether you want to play sport or just enjoy life, those two things are, are of benefit to you. And when you can't move anymore for the purposes of whatever it is that you want to apply that movement skill or movement ability to, then life gets miserable. You can't play the sport you love. You can't go skiing. You can't play with your kids. You're in pain. Like that's not living. So movement is life. And, and I, I enjoy helping people to move better, be strong and have fun with their training. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I remember a friend of mine who did his master's at St. Mary's and one of the slides that stuck with me was uh, how babies develop movement skills. And as we get older, it's ironic because we literally come full circle. So a baby, for example, might not be able to stand, but it can crawl uh, or it can, for example, move its neck. And when you get, I mean, for example, my nan, God bless her, towards the end of her life, she literally couldn't squat up and down out of a chair. And you think, well, that for me is massively motivated. I mean, you guys talk about investing in your physical pension. I think I want to be in control of my body and control of my mind for as long as is physically possible. And then you get, for example, the elderly people towards the end of life are very much like children where they can't walk without assistance or they can't come out of a chair. And as you said, movement options are limited and quality of life just disappears. Um, in terms of in terms of communication and one of the things I love about your brand of school of calisthenics is everything that you communicate is in line with what I as an outsider perceive your brand to be so even little things like if you're part of the virtual classroom which you guys run online it's not for example workout one workout two workout three workout four it's lesson one lesson two lesson three lesson four and even little things like it's not here's Tim or Jacko's tip. It's here's a message from the headmaster. So how did you come up with the idea of the school of calisthenics brand and where's that grown out of? Uh, yeah. So it starts off with Jacko and I just playing around with calisthenics. I, I, I kind of roped him into it in the early stages. I've had um, very briefly my, my, my training and, and sport based history was as a, as a rugby player, not a particularly good one, but a very enthusiastic um, one. Um, but I suffered with two, I had two shoulder reconstructions after multiple dislocations. Um, I don't know how many times I dif- dislocated my left shoulder, but I had two reconstructions and a, an absolute ton of physiotherapy. And none of it had really got me back to a point that I was actually confident with my shoulder. So I was strength training at the time, building my sensei experience, starting my career in that area. And um, yeah, I couldn't, I just couldn't, didn't have confidence in overhead weighted patterns so I decided that if I could learn to handstand and that would give me some confidence that my shoulder was stable I decided that it would also be a useful thing for me to have 
um, more kind of skills in that area to be able to use with athletes to create more diversity in training programs, teach them to be more athletic. Um, so I started with it and, and I, I was, I've kicked off with just going, I'm going to do a back lever and I'm going to do a, a handstand. Um, and I wrote Jacko into it because he just finished his rugby career at the time as a result of a, a head injury. And we just started playing around in the gym. When we were rubbish when we first started, none of us got any gymnastics background. And we were really bad. So we just eventually sort of messed around the gym, got okay. And then people asked us to, to put some workshops on because we kind of taken what we know about S&C, broken the movements down and said, well, what do you actually need to be able to do to do a human flag? So we'd really kind of made it quite accessible for anybody to have a, to get on board with calisthenics. So that the school was kind of theme always came out of, we wanted to educate people. We wanted to make it accessible. We wanted it to be a place where someone could come and learn about calisthenics training rather than just going on YouTube, watching a half-baked coaching video where someone's going, here's how to do a human flag. And you leaving it going, well, I know that you know how to do a human flag, but I don't know how I need to do one because our starting points and background and context is all completely different. So what we hope with our training programs is that if you are, day one calisthenics or day one training in, in body weight, whether you've got any real kind of history of strength training or, or skill training before or not, there's an on-ramp for you. You can learn through a human flag um, using our programs and we've broken it down to the real components and we help you to stitch it together. And the, the brand piece came about really, that's kind of my baby, um, I suppose, in that I want people to have an experience. I think that's what where successful business comes, where you have a, an interaction and, and almost an unwritten exchange. So when someone comes to the platform, I want our brand to be communicated in a way which is fun and playful. It kind of, some people criticize it early doors because like, I hated school, so why do I want to come to your school? I was like, well, okay. But everyone went to school. Everyone's got context of school. Um, and yeah, we, we very much pinned our colors to the mass early doors and went, we're going we're gonna to educate you. We're not just going to be a, a paid for YouTube service. We, we want you to understand why you're doing so that ultimately you can write your own training program. We, we, we kind of veered, it took us a while to get to the point where we actually wanted to do online programs for general population and the public just to, to, to sign in and, and, and purchase. Because from an SNC background, you write a training program for a specific person based on what the adaptation is that they need. And I found it difficult originally to actually get on board with just putting programs out that might not be suitable for everybody who is using them. And that's where that kind of dovetails with, we can put a program out, which is kind of a, let's shoot down the middle. Most people are going to need these sorts of things, but there'll obviously people at different stages who need something different. But if you understand why that program is constructed like it is and why we've chosen those exercises and what their purpose is, you've then got power to adapt your training program to do more or less of the things that you need to do and therefore accelerate your progress, which is a responsibility that code that people who are using our platform um, or asking us to fulfill like an athlete it's a responsibility to put them in the, in the shape that they need to be in to go and compete um, so I kind of see it like that and, and yeah the, the brand is fun like I just I enjoy graphics and branding and that sort of stuff so it's just an opportunity to try and differentiate and give people an experience when they came to, to engage with any of our content and speaking about creating uh, that experience one thing I've loved in terms of looking at your guys work is how you built up a community and managed to deliver what for me looks like very meaningful experiences um how have you i suppose well, one have you gone about doing that but in terms of when you first started the brand to sort of where you are now how have you looked to advance those community experiences if that makes any sort of sense yeah we always wanted it to be about people um and to 
like we, we're currently currently the language that we're currently using is that we are like we are not bots we are not artificial intelligence and the world and, and digital areas at the moment in fitness is trying to automate everything like it still knocks you on you off your off your feet if you ring somebody up and you get through on a call center you get through to a person who answers the phone like we massively value those things because it's somebody who's wanting to help um and it's not a behind hidden behind 20 different button options to try and get through to actually speak to someone and we always wanted to build a community and, and calisthenics for anybody who's had a, who's tried or played around with it it's just a really social way to exercise if you're at a park training outdoors, trying to learn to do something, and there's somebody else there training calisthenics, it is almost impossible not to have a conversation about it. Whereas my experience in the gym is there's lots of people in back squats, but not many of them were particularly open to having a conversation about it in the middle of a session. Um, so with calisthenics, we wanted it to be like that. We wanted it to feel like there was a group of people in it together, supporting each other. And it's progressed over time with us regularly running workshops, face-to-face um, -face stuff to start off with. We tried to break the record uh, a couple of years ago now for the three years ago for the most number of people doing a handstand. The following year from that, we did a uh, just a community day, like a hangout. So loads of people came down. We had bars set up. And it, it's just like we're humans, right? We're, we're built for connection and community. And I think that was always a really important part of bringing people together and I think one of the things that we're Jack and I are probably most proud of is that there's people who now have relationships as a result of us facilitating a connection and they inspire each other and they support each other. And when we meet up, they're friends and they enjoy hanging out together. And I think that's um, as big a part of it as whether you can actually do a human flag or not. Yeah, that, I absolutely love that answer. And in terms of, we briefly mentioned the virtual classroom and we kind of spoke about this off air, but in terms of building an online resource, what were some of the um, problems that you potentially saw with other online resources, be it calisthenics or otherwise, that you wanted to try and address when it came to creating the virtual classroom? Yeah, so it, it came from a, a natural evolution, really, because we'd done a series of ebooks first, um, and we'd kind of put quite a lot of educational content into it. And um, the way that my brain works is I, I want to I I help people, I want to educate them. So we wrote a muscle up book um, and we did ring and bar muscle up ebook to start off with. And then right. We're like, keep it short, keep it sweet, keep it to the point. And I was like writing, I was like, right, Jacko, that's 10,000 words, 15,000 words. And I think it ended up something like 20,000 words because I put a lot of scientific content in there that it's going to be helpful for people if they want to engage and, and learn from it. But we wanted to flip it to an online platform because it just gave us more options. We could create more content. We could put content in there um, in, a, in a central holding point where people could have access to more stuff. And then we could actually have dialects and engage with them. The problem with eBooks is someone gives you an email address and we can put them on a mailing list. But that interaction kind of often stops there. And we wanted to continue that conversation and, and continue to support people if they got stuck. So we shaped it up and we, we partnered with an a, um, e-learning specialist company um, for those people that are interested in this sort of stuff like the, the, around business side of things, the, the reason for that being that we wanted to create a minimal viable product, put it out there, see how it goes, because we didn't know necessarily what the engagement or uptake was, was going to be. So there's no point investing tens of thousands of pounds in an idea that you haven't tested. Um, but the platform that we chose is evolving. It, it houses our content really well. It doesn't cost us a huge amount of money. Um, so it, it was a really, um, it was a really effective solution. It's not perfect for what we need it for, but it's very difficult to find something which does absolutely everything that you want it to do if you're not going to go and build it by yourself. Um, 
and yeah, we just started creating the content. And then that was a, that was a bit of a skill really in understanding how the platform works. How do you want to present information and then how you can manipulate that platform to, to present the content in a way which you want to, you want to show it. And as you mentioned before, we've broken our courses down to modules. So there's, there's almost like a progressive nature to them. Start here, do these like four week training programs. If you can pass the self-assessment at the end of the module, then move on to the next module. If you can't, here's some tips and things to go back and work on. So we tried to individualize it all the way through so that it was removing those potential hurdles and blocks where people would get to and then go, I get, I get stuck. Um, and that's something we're trying to improve all the time. We've just started doing like two like, webinars every week, me and Jacko for, um, for our members. And like, if you've got problems or you've got stuck, like jump on a free webinar as part of your membership, we're giving you face-to-face contact with a coach um, rather than just leaving you to, to your own devices and to, to sort of get frustrated and probably drop out of, of training calisthenics because ultimately what we're asked what people are trying to do are hard these are difficult movements it's not easy it's not easy stuff a lot of the time um so yeah it was it was that natural kind of evolution of creating content putting it out there structuring it in a way which we thought would be digestible for people and to be honest that's a continual evolution we're always trying to refine that and um and, and try and make it better and easier for people and what i like with the virtual classroom setup is for me you bridge the gap beautifully between coaching and training like we i can't remember whether this was part of the recording we're doing now or whether it's off air um but it sounds like we suffer from the similar kind of mindset where we actually care about the person who's receiving that program and whether it's going to be of most benefit to them versus what a lot of times you see in the fitness industry which is here's my instagram post three sets of ten of this 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 and this off you go um but with those webinars, with those tips from the headmaster that we spoke about, with those self-assessments, it's actually guided quite nicely where it doesn't require you to be an athlete's beck and call every second of the day. But it does provide the appropriate amount of support for people to think by themselves, but also have you guys there um, at appropriate times when needed. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that's the experience that people have when they use it. That they And, and, and that's the thing, like it's that's probably where people have got to come in a little bit prepared to do some work. I think we probably, some people, our platform is not for everybody because it's not going to, it's not a necessary just rock up and um, follow along a workout. That's why people like exercise classes, right? You don't have to think, you just get told what to do. Um, I think online learning works best when there is a combination and there's a, there's a, um, a responsibility on both sides to, to invest in that process. Um, because you ultimately you're trying to create something and provide people with a service which is enhancing their life and we want to make sure that people as a result of using our content are equipped for moving their body body better to train in different ways to have flexibility to, to do all of these things which are, are positive but to have ownership and control over those things where you don't feel overwhelmed you need to understand a little bit about the basics of training and i, and I don't think that if, if you're interested in your health and well-being, investing some time in learning a little bit about that is, is a really significant and valuable time uh, thing to do. See it as a hobby. Like it's, you would learn how to cook better if that was your thing or paint better. Well, if, you're, if you enjoy training, learn how to train better because it will make you better at it and it will make your life better as a result. Yeah, and it's, it's almost one of those ironic things where you talk about follow-along workouts and people are like, oh, no, 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 I just don't have time. Just tell me what to do. And you're like... Yeah, but by learning this stuff, if you're going to do it regularly anyway, by learning it, that's an investment of your time, which then allows you, as you said, with cooking, 
you can then cook more nutritious meals, cook in a more efficient way, make it taste better. Um, it's the same, same with training, but it's one of those things I have to appreciate that not everyone is going to care about the minuscule details the way that, for example, we as training and conditioning coaches, performance coaches might care about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in terms of needs analysis, you mentioned about you and Jacko using your strength and conditioning mindset to break down these movements. Um, how do you start then if you were to say, talk to me or somebody else about, let's say somebody says, yeah, I want to do a human flag. I want to do a plunge. Where does that needs analysis start in terms of, and I'm sure you probably hate this question when someone's like, uh, with no context at all, by the way, hey, Tim, <laughs> how long till I can do a plunge or a handstand or whatever? Uh, yeah, Jack O'Donnell does a good job of flipping this one back. Um, and he often will challenge them back and go, why does it matter how long it takes? Right? We, we get that question all the time. How long to a handstand? Um, and we try to stop people from focusing on how long it's going to take because everybody's journey is going to be individual. There's no, there is no, I, I saw a, um, I saw a, during lockdown, there was, there was somebody advertising on social about handstanding 30 days. And I'm like, ridiculous. Like, you, you cannot sell that because it will take some people two years to do it. And it's a lie that you can, you can do. You've got a one fit program that anyone can do a, can do a good handstand hold in 30 days. It's a long process. So we try to encourage people to, to just to go on their own journey with it and let it take as long as it takes. Um, and to a point you made before when we were chatting, like we actually, people want the fastest route from A to B, but the value of these things is actually in, in, the, in the journey. And it's, it's, yes, it's massively cliche, but what you learn along the way of, of going through that process of developing a handstand, not only from how you, what you're going to learn about your body, but your mindset of learning something which is a, a high skill-based movement, um, that's massive. Like there's a, there's a, the, the, the value of that is way more than whether you can take a photo and put it on Instagram. Um, so the needs analysis starts of, okay, let's, let's not worry too much how long it's going to take. Let's worry about where your starting point is. So a handstand is like anyone can start a handstand because it's pretty straightforward. You can, you can jump on that train fairly, fairly easily. If you want to do a strict bar muscle up, then it's going to take a little bit more strength background to just earn the right to go and play at that level. You need to be able to do some pull-ups before you can start thinking about making a pull-up explosive. We would never train an athlete first in speed without having a, a, a basic foundation of stability of strength or movement strength. Um, so yeah, it depends on, on those sorts of things. But what we've tried to do in the way that we structure the courses is like you'll see in our human flag programs, there's, there's basic strength all the way through it. We are big on basic strength. Never, never stop building the fundamental basics of pull up, push up strength and dips. Those are always going to serve you well, regardless of what, what it is you want to do in calisthenics. But there'll be some movements along the way in module one of the, of the human flag course, for example, where you are feeling like you're doing something which looks a little bit like a flag, but a really easy version of it. So at least you've got that kind of experience as I feel like I'm learning a human flag. But the emphasis of the training is on actual basic strength development. And can you get your pull-ups up to a decent level so we can then go and start to make them a little bit more explosive? Um, so that's, that's typically just directing people to find out, like try a few things, let's see where you're at and let's see where you need to go and spend your time. Um, and, and that's that, the challenge of doing that in a workshop versus doing that online is a bit different or face-to-face -face versus online. Um, but we try to structure the process within that to go find your level and this is where you need to train. And then now, know whether we do that in a workshop or face-to-face -face, we try and have the same outcome know where you are know what you've got to do next and that is all different depending on on that person and what they've done before what baggage they bring to the table with them in terms of injuries or um, past 
training experience, that sort of thing. It is funny as well, because uh, we were chatting offline about the difficulty of uh, things like Twitter and trying to answer something productively, 140 or whatever the character limit is now. Um, but it is funny because I you see videos like this all the time on YouTube and it's like, can you do 10 pull-ups? Then you can muscle up. And I think, obviously, we both know it's never as straightforward as that. But, for example, if you cannot do one pull-up, you are not getting a muscle-up. I mean, yeah. I remember um, looking through your content and I almost trying to conceptualize it in my own head because we're talking about teaching kids new skills and trying to delay the gratification that they're not going to learn a human flag or a pull-up in one lesson and I almost imagine it as a sort of an inner circle if you will and then it's all right can you learn the pull-up the push-up and I don't know the hollow body hold or whatever core Mm -hmm. exercise okay great that will then give you a foundation to I don't know learn a tuck flag or learn a handstand against the wall or whatever and it's almost right now you're earning the right to slowly progress outwards and at least now you can measure the progression rather than uh, as you've said in many other podcasts where people fail where they kick up into a handstand it's like oh maybe not today maybe i'll magically kick up and manage it tomorrow yeah there's a little bit of that in in there i mean like there is one day when you're just going to do something for the first time and it's going to probably be a little bit of a surprise when it happens but we, we use the phrase all the time earn the right to progress and that's that's the crux of it like if you you have to earn the right to progress in calisthenics you can't cheat it often people try but they'll try and jump too far ahead because they probably are driven by their ego and think that they're better than they actually are and then they'll spend some time investing it and doing stuff which is way too difficult for them and they'll have to come back ultimately build the foundations and progress it back through it's actually one of the things i really like about calisthenics is it keeps you very honest um, and it, it humbles your ego it's not the same as just getting a barbell and you can probably squeeze a little bit more weight on a barbell and just do it badly like it will but the same principles apply you're never going to go and smash your like your pbs or like your some of your background around powerlifting if you haven't actually taken the time to build strong foundations they ultimately will crumble underneath you at some point well funny enough i remember uh, shortly after buying your guys frog stand handstand ebook the one of the first first posts i did was comparing how powerlifting calisthenics are literally on opposite ends of the spectrum in the sense of with powerlifting if for example i want to squat more weight i can make sure that i only go an inch below parallel or i can create a bigger arch in my bench press so i don't push the weight as far um and powerlifting almost rewards the ability to i suppose find workarounds whereas calisthenics if we look at it as beauty and strength uh I remember, for example, doing a frog stand and taking my knee off for the first time and nearly smashed my glasses because <laughs> it, it punishes your trying to find weak links. And we also mentioned offline about um, the first time I tried to ring muscle up. Now, because of my powerlifting, I have a base of strength that makes those skills more accessible. But by God, did it look ugly. And the uh, I, I mean, I never ended up posting it on social media because I thought this is just... <laughs> making me look like I don't practice what I preach but strength can short circuit a lot of things but it doesn't guarantee quality movement no not at all it's it's still like it does it what strength does is it allows you to continue to go and play at a higher level so the more strength that you've got underpinning um the basic fundamental movement patterns the probably the quicker you're likely to see progression once you add in that skill acquisition phase so I can get quite a bit of progression out of my hand balancing um stuff and my handstand push-up progressions, that sort of thing, because I've, I've got a decent amount of pushing strength. I mean, I can learn new skills quite quickly. Um, but there, there's often comes a point where you just got to go and spend some time on getting strong. 
and then you can add more skills onto the top of it. But the loft, I now like having kind of got the, the basics nailed down, my cycle of training is much more around big strength phase block. And then I'll go and do some, probably take that into a bit more of like specific skill acquisition stuff and followed by another big strength phase block. And maybe start to these days, I'm probably less specific with my training towards movements and just play around. And like there's sometimes you just go and do some strength work and you've seen someone do something, and you go and try it for the first time and you, you do all right at it. Like it's not perfect. Like I did an L sit must look for the first time um, on my rings. Uh, over the weekend i'd never done one before the, the transition is different and you almost you don't get the the shift in body weight to help you through the rings and stuff but give that a couple of weeks and i'll probably it'll be looking half decent but it's only because you've built that strength to underpin everything else and if anyone's listening to this thinking our oh, callus it sounds really difficult these are all really advanced big movements like you can still start like we we've we get people um come to our workshops who are anything from 25 to 75 and I'm, I'm not exaggerating there um, in terms of age range and there's a starting place for everybody in calisthenics it doesn't have to be about like, doing one of these like big iconic human flag movements which is a difficult movement the ring muscle up is, is much more achievable than, than people think the the, the bar the back lever is is, a, is also a very achievable move for people without a huge amount of time and investment um, and as I say, handstands, I think it's just something that everybody should learn to do because I think it's great for your upper body stability and, and mobility. And just as you're talking there, I'm almost thinking about, um, as you said, it doesn't have to be that big goal. But if people getting into calisthenics or they're just new to training, if you were to sort of, I guess, order those bigger movements in terms of skill, strength and just the feasibility of learning it, if we, I'm guessing that, for example, sometimes our planche is way over on the, I don't know, the right-hand side of this hypothetical continuum. What would you say in your experiences are some of these sort of easier skills that do still look impressive, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, there are these, like, we talk about these, some of the things we've mentioned before, but there's a, we, we, we also, in uh, within the School of Calisthenics, talk about strength and play. And we have this kind of idea that we can have fun getting strong um, rather than, I mean, one of the things that was attractive to me about calisthenics was I spent years doing dumbbell bench press, incline, decline, dumbbell rows, single arm, all that sort of stuff. And it's ultimately, it's just the same. It's the same stuff, just done slightly differently. And what I was doing was going into the gym and going, oh, should I do five reps or 10 reps today? Like, what's my program? I do two weeks of max strength, get bored and be like, oh, do you know what? I'm going to do some hypertrophy. Like, I was bouncing around because it was just more of the same. I mastered the movements in the gym and there was nothing else for me. I could Olympic lift. Um, and yeah you know it gets to that stage we can come into calisthenics and you can if you could do a pull-up well can you do an archer pull-up or a typewriter pull-up are there some some different variations within these these basic movement patterns where you can actually start to have some more fun and challenge yourself um and there's lots and lots of different things that you can do which are really really easy wins so if we're going to get people into calisthenics we want to feel a little bit of excitement about learning something new we might teach them an elbow lever or something like that. Sometimes a frog stand of just taking your feet off the ground and balanced on your hands is, is, a, is a massive win for people. So it's not always like these big audacious things you're trying to work towards. If you do go down that route, our general recommendation is get your handstand going because it takes a long time. It's fine motor control. It's very difficult um, in terms of the amount of time you need to invest into it. We've massively simplified the process. We went to the, the skill acquisition literature and we've looked at a number of different concepts about how do you sort of, what's the least amount of work or least amount of uh, exercises you need to do to actually learn to do a handstand? Because 
it's something which is everyone's got an opinion on and lots of different things. And there's probably hundreds of exercises you could do, but what are the ones that actually make a difference and actually contribute to learning that skill? Um, but it does take a long time. It, and then it, after that, it varies. Like I know, I know, let's take female athletes. I know female athletes, it can ring muscle up, but can't back lever um, and find a back lever really difficult. Whereas a back lever was the first thing I could actually learn how to do you rotate your shoulder inwards on the rings, you pack it in nice and tight. And if you've got a little bit of strength, you can kind of start to feel the pattern. So it really does depend on that. Um, the human flag is one that a lot of people go for. And the challenge in that is that it's a push and a pull at the same time. And rarely has anybody ever trained push and pull maximally overhead before. So it's a very new pattern, um, but also again, achievable. And there's, there's, there's men and women in our community who have nailed down a human flag and do it brilliantly. Um, so I think we would just encourage people to go after something which looks exciting to you. Like if you look at Batley and he goes, I really don't want to do that. But Tim says the thing I should do first. And it's not, there's no point. Like if you want to do a human flag, go and train a human flag. If it's fun for you, um, because that's ultimately what the most important thing is. And it's the thing that will drive your enjoyment and adherence to a training program. If you actually like what you're doing and it's of a value to you. Um, everyone wants to learn to handstand. So that's why I think it's like, it's a, it's just a cool thing to be able to do. And going back to the sort of opening question of the podcast, which is about philosophy, um, something that your work sort of opened my eyes up to, especially when actually working with athletes, is the idea that we get so used to training in sagittal plane, yet, well, one, sport doesn't occur there, but two, how strong are we at awkward ranges of motion? Uh, how strong are we in sort of, I suppose, unconventional positions? But my question has, to, uh, my question relates to how do you, balance that within the context of a training program for example uh you and jacko have spoken about uh i think it was something like a typewriter pull up or an archer pull up in terms of maybe that gives us some strength to offhand someone in an awkward position in rugby um but it'd also be easy to hear that and think oh well this uh, sagittal plane pushing and pulling is a waste of time because we're not going to be there on the field how do you balance between yes we need to get strong sagittally but we also potentially need a bit of a strength reserve in those awkward ranges. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's, I mean, sagittal plane is easy, right? The body can shift weight in sagittal plane pretty, pretty well. And we know that because bench, row, deadlift, squat, we're pretty good at that. Um, and there's no doubt the human body is designed for sagittal plane movement predominantly. It's the way that we walk, run, and it's a very efficient way for us to move. And if you just look at the architecture of the system, then it's designed for that. I think the thing for me is that, as you say, sports not played in sagittal plane all the time unless you're doing bowls or something like that. Like it's, there are always going to be different movement planes in uh, in operation at the same time as there is with anything. Uh, that's kind of a bigger conversation. We'd probably stay away from that rabbit hole today. But I'm I'm interested in exposing people to awkward, I think, and exposing people to a level of chaos in the strength and conditioning environment, which is what they're going to have to go and tolerate or be prepared for on the field. Because a cut change of direction in rugby, yes, we can practice that on the training pitch, but what do we practice it when you've got a guy who weighs 110 kilos, like jumping at you or coming towards you? These are all different things. You might want to put your hand up. And the, 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 the scenarios of this sort of stuff are, are infinite. But I just look at training in the gym for sport and I... I just see a lot of the same kind of stuff and it doesn't look like what it looks like on the park. 
um, particularly around the upper body. I think lower body we do a better job of because we can train speed agility and we can get load through those patterns much easier during in small sided games or game based practice. Um, but what, you, what we don't do is, is have a consideration for the upper body to the same extent. Um, and I think that's where calisthenics potentially creates an opportunity of putting you in difficult positions and asking you to be strong there. Um, and and from, in my mind, that helps with just the general robustness or however we want to kind of frame it, but just the, the readiness for chaos, if that's, if that's your sport. And let's say like I've done a lot of work in swimming over the years. Swimming is not a chaotic sport. It's very predictable. But the volume that the guys do, like, let's get out of the way of thinking that all sport is healthy. Um, doing eight sessions a week of front crawl is not good for your shoulder. Um, so we need to give options within the training environment that, that are moving and restoring some of the, 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 the movement cop, um, potential that the, the upper body has particularly. Um, and yeah, offsetting some of the damage done by, by what sport is. I mean, talk to Jacko about rugby. He got very good at being tight. That was the job. Like don't get hit with your arm sticking out to the side. So you get very good at internal rotation of the shoulder and packing in close. The same for you with boxing, same thing, like cover up and get tight. Um, and I just think from a human movement perspective, we need to expand that, that movement literacy further. So I don't know if that answers the question. I've just spoke five minutes and I don't know if I actually got That's there or not. Um, <laughs> I suppose it is I mean, probably my fault with the question. Um, on another podcast, again, I think it either is to do with youth sport or swimming, uh, I think you mentioned that you would have five minutes of what you would call athletic development. Um, and that was the way you sort of, I don't know whether disguise is the right word, but you snuck in this, look, we're just going to have fun playing and moving in different ways. Um, so I guess my question on a more specific level is, how do you get this into the program? Is it accessory work? Is it, for example, you are quote unquote strong enough? Uh, is it in the warm up? Um, again, I know there's lots of context missing there with youth athletes, professional athletes, etc. Um, but I don't know if that question helps anymore. Yeah, I think um, I'm very comfortable not putting bench press and row in their traditional forms in a training program. Um, so I've done quite a lot of work with wheelchair races before, and a planche-based pushing position is almost identical to, or is probably very close to maximising any the potential transfer of training from an SNC into a race chair position. Um, we can get the shoulder forward. It's an extension type pattern. Um, so we used to just, well, I would just put in planche type pushing movements into a training program. Um, and that would be our push movement for that session. Um, I would still use bench press or dumbbell chest press or whatever it might be during certain phases. But during those phases of, of a training program where I wanted to create some complexity in the early stages and build some of that foundation stability strength, if I wanted to start to connect the kinetic chain together a bit more, um, where I'm forcing or creating an exercise which forces the shoulder and the hip to actually be connected and let's say in inverted commas, talk to each other or at least work together. Um, that for me is massively important, like integrity of the kinetic chain and efficiency of the chain. Whereas you don't have to do that on a bench. You're lying down. Like there is no need really. And we can talk about it, we can coach it, but it's a very, very different challenge to having to try and balance or I'd use an exercise. like put your feet in a set of gymnastics rings, lean forward into a plunge position, and then let's go through a push-up position. So I'm creating connectivity through the chain transfer of forces through the chain in a sport specific movement and it's not it's not easy 
if that gets easy, then we're going to go and do it. And we might, we might change the complexity of the exercise by the, the amount of forward lean. We might put you on parallel. So you're now working through a greater range of movement. I might stick a weight vest on you, but I can use the same principles of that pattern and the kinetic chain approach to an exercise where I think I'm putting more ticks in more boxes than just a pure force output conversation, which I'm probably focusing on, on from a bench press. As I said, it's not that I don't use those strength-based exercises, but I'm very comfortable not putting them in a program and putting something in which looks a little bit more connected, uh, sorry, a little bit more complex. And one of the reasons for that is I trained a guy called Rich Whitehead, who is double leg amputee. Um, we've been through probably five, six years of training together, done a lot of strength work. He's a strong guy, but he would lift off, he'd do deadlift on a box off his knees effectively. One pre well one, one early season so our september to christmas window we did no dedicated strength-based training we just looked at motor control movement pattern optimization starting to get him to move with more stability with more control more connected more connectivity through the chain and the, the philosophy around that was i'm not interested in um, how much force you can apply i'm more interested in how efficiently you can apply that force so that was the kind of the objective of that that block we came back in in january having done no deadlift work with any real strength focus um and he'd gone from a 200 kilo deadlift for three to 220 kilo deadlift for three so if you're we're already talking like pretty high-end volume or or, or intensities at sort of one to three rep maxes we put 10 percent on his deadlift from not deadlifting i'm like there's something here with optimizing how the system wants to apply force and if i make the system more efficient at doing that i get force application actually like at the same time and now what i'm going to go and do is i'm now going to go and put some more intensity work on top of that more stable and connected system and i'm going to go and take that even further so I'm, I'm eking out my law of diminishing returns i'm getting a little bit more from that top end by taking some time to upgrade the system and i think that's where calisthenics comes in it's, it's it forces you to move as an integrated unit which is how the body is designed we are not a group of individual isolated muscles that we want to target on a one-on-one kind of like bicep curl type um, environment so yeah it's 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 it's, it's tweaks with the program it's it's not being afraid to try some stuff like there's that kind of if you're not sure about any of this and you want to start using it in your program so stick to 80 percent of what you know works but put 20 percent towards playing around with some stuff because that's how you're going to test it see if it works and evolve your programming and if the athlete likes it and they believe in it arguably there's an unknown quantity, like something which we can't quantify in that. If they think I've given the best exercise and when they go in to race or, re- or go in the chair or to swim, they're like, Tim, I can feel that exercise we've been doing in the gym. Well, like, who am I to say that that is the best, that's better. But if the athlete believes in it, there's a, there's a, a, there's a value there that we will never get to quantify. I mean, I think that's a brilliant answer. I mean, I've just double asterisked and underlined it just because uh, it's relevant to a lot of what I'm working on at the moment. Um, we spoke offline and I said that with, for example, my overhead squat to a lot of the untrained eye, people think, oh yeah, that's pretty good. Um, but sent it to um, a coach that I used to intern under and he's like, right, you need to fix this, fix this, fix this. Anyway, tried the corrective stuff that he's recommended. And then that's about, I don't know, 10% of my program. But all of a sudden I can feel different muscles working in my powerlifting training. And in my head, I'm like, he's a genius. It's working. And I said, whether or not that is the case, because he even admitted to me, look, this might help you, this might not. But already I'm thinking, oh, my body feels like it's moving differently. Therefore, I'm perceiving that this is a good thing. And therefore, when I start, for example, benching again or competing again, psychologically, that's going to do 
just as much for me as the potential physical outcome, as you've mentioned, sticking 20 kilos on a deadlift minus any sort of deadlifting work. Mm. Yeah, no, it was, it was a bit of an eye opener for me and it's something that I've stuck with. Um, it's, that's coming off a place of a guy having done a huge amount of strength work. It's not the first thing that I would do in a program, but it's, it's, it, there are ways then to start to, how do you evolve and how do you get someone stronger? And then, you, then the question of what, how strong do you need to be comes up. Well, in track sprinting, there is going to obviously be a limit of how strong you need to be, but how much force can you put into the ground? Like more is, is generally going to be quite advantageous for you. And it's funny just listening to you talk about uh, Rich Whitehead's progress there. I see a lot of, and we were talking about the difficulty with social media and not reading too much into a tweet or something. But I see, for example, uh, some examples as calisthenics. And it'll say, oh, if you improve your, I don't know, handstand push-up, your military press will get better. And I'm like, well, there's a lot of context missing there. Like you're assuming your skill acquisition is the same in both you're assuming that you can drag and drop one. And yes, there's going to be transfer and strength is quite generic, but I'm also thinking how strong was that athlete in the first place? Like you saying, Rich is deadlifting 200 to 220. I think, wow, now I'm listening because my best deadlift is 220 and I've got a lot more mass than Rich. But then equally looking into the context, you could say, well, what about range of motion? What about previous yeah, yeah. training history? Um, it's so easy to be like, oh, this is the holy grail. It, it might be, it, it might not be. Yeah, and there's something else that we're kind of like digging more into that I think is, is an area of my SNC career that I've missed out on for the first probably 10 to 11 years. Maybe it's only an area that I'm starting to come to now is understanding the, the, a more neurological approach to training and the brain-based approach. And how much time as SNC coaches do we actually dedicate to thinking about how we are accommodating for stimulating or utilizing the visual and vestibular systems? And if we go down this route of like the brain, like the central nervous system is going to be the determining factor in everything. It's going to decide what is and what isn't going to happen. If you the, the central governor theory, potentially. Well, let's take the handstand example. If you spend some time under minimal amounts of load, let's say relative to kind of a shoulder press or a military press, spending some time working overhead, giving the brain some confidence in range of movement, end of range stability, um, giving the brain some confidence that it is safe to be there and to be under load. And then you go and take that and you put it into a military press where you want to be strong. I'm pretty confident that that has a benefit because what the brain is going to do is, is assess threat. So if it's, if it feels like the shoulder is weak overhead or is unstable, the joints going to lose its structural integrity, it'll wind down that force in a split second. And all of a sudden you're not pushing that bar anywhere, but give that brain some confidence or the central nervous system, some confidence in end range of positions at um, potentially unstable uh, movements. If it knows it can do that, it will let you do it. It's, it's tapping into this un, unutilized potential by actually taking a bit more of a neurological approach. And that's potentially what we've done with, with, with Richard's training is that example. We've just given the brain more confidence to stabilize the spine and therefore it was able to actually put more of that potential force capacity it had um, rather than it being anything more complicated than that. I think those are key things for me that I'm starting to understand about how the, the system operates rather than just looking at a very biomechanical approach to training. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. One of the questions I've jotted under my AOB uh, section is just the thought of using calisthenics for uh, either rehab or simply rather than saying, for example, does this hurt or whatever? I mean, using my own training's example, I've had uh, a little quad niggle for the last few weeks now, and I'm thinking about using something like a reverse Nordic to say, look, when you can reverse Nordic pain-free, which I have done before, then that's a sign that there's strength there, there's length there. I'm training in a range of motion that 
is, I guess, uh, as quote unquote threatening to the system as it's potentially ever likely to be. Um, what do you, do you see any other unique benefits to calisthenics um, that we perhaps don't get through traditional weight training? I think the variety of movement is one of them that we've kind of talked about fairly extensively, I guess. Um, I think play is a big one. Um, the benefit of just exploring the opportunity to move in different ways. Um, I think training can become quite stagnant when we've had athletes that have been in the process for some time. And, and you, you made the point before about, I originally started using hand balancing in a training program under the guise of athletic development. And the, the communication to the athlete was, we're just going to learn to move in different ways. We're just going to do something we can't currently do. And they flipping loved it because there was this, this guy called Ollie Hind who I started it with. He was a swimmer. Swimming is like monotonous. The, the training and in both the gym and the pool is, is very monotonous. So bring him in the gym and just give him some variety. He just loved it. And, and again, let's, let's think more holistically. What does the brain think about, about that? Like it's having an opportunity to, to play with something new. I'm, I'm very confident on this one that particularly where you've got sports with a high amount of repetition, the same movement patterns, there is a benefit of bringing in movement challenge, which just lights up the brain to learn something new because um, it's just different. It's a new novel stimulus and, and overload doesn't always need to be in the form of um, can we put more weight on a bar? I think overload can be in a form of athleticism and complexity and starting to just crawling or, or whatever it might be. It doesn't even need to be complicated. Um, so I think that the play is one thing and, and the enjoyment of that, that, that process um, is another part of where calisthenics potentially has a, has a role to play. Um, and I also want to go on record in this conversation of, as this is not me saying that calisthenics is the magic bullet and ditch everything else. This is part of what I would see as a structured and progressive training program with a utilized within specific phases for a specific outcome. If we're talking about an athletic population and that specific outcome could be just capacity or fundamental strength or, or whatever you want to call it, stability, neuromuscular control, enhancing the chain whatever it is um and we're not a million miles away from what franz bosch would talk about with some of this sort of stuff like we are we're talking about similar sorts of principles of, of adding range and a certain level of unpredictability into strength training um yeah there's probably two a couple of thoughts there i'm uh, <laughs> i'm just cognizant of uh, anyone watching this on video that my lights seem to be going mental so i'm just going to turn them off but if we suddenly get cut off my whole electricity in my house has gone down <laughs> um just give me one second right we're back but if the uh... for, for those not watching todd's just turned on the mood lighting i think it's about to get personal <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to make a play on words there based on your uh, previous podcast, but I'm going to avoid it. Um, in terms of uh, variability, then, uh, how do we draw the line between, for example, this is movement variability that's going to get us better. So, for example, I don't know, your frog stand on your concrete versus your gym floor versus your pillow versus I guess some of the quackery that I see on social media where it's like, now we've just gone variability for the sake of variability's sake. The, the, the thing that comes down to me is understanding what those goals are. So from a, if we're approaching it from a physical literacy perspective, and I, I like it, we'll do some work with the, with the swimmers on this. Um, if I'm just interested in athleticism, then that's the goal. So play can have less specific purpose. Um, if you are looking for a specific outcome or transfer a training effect or whatever it might be, then I think we need to make some probably 
get some more clarity on the on the sorts of things that we are we're trying to do. But there's still there's still space, in my opinion, for play in a program during warm ups, for example, or a session during the week where we're just taking a little bit of the the the, um, the rigidity or structure out of a training program. We're having a bit more of a free for all. There's there's going to be sort of like a bit more time for for these movements. It doesn't mean to say that they aren't of benefit and they shouldn't be thought through. Um, but I think that it's down to the coaching skill of where those where those feature in a training program. Um, but I'm not, yeah, I'm not at all. I'm, I'm quite comfortable as well with having exercises in there in certain parts of the training program at times in the season, which are just for athletic development. I don't think it needs to be um, always specifically targeted towards a sport specific outcome, because ultimately, I think athletes get better at their sport by playing their sport. Like. We we sometimes and I, I was guilty of this when I first started in S and C of um, over um, overstating the role and the importance of S and C. Um, it is a cog in a very uh, in, in a in a number of um, the intersection of a number of different wheels in a in a big system. Um, so how how we make those decisions around programming and what features and what doesn't it's it's not always a be all and end all. Often coaches like if you give it, if you give a coach a technical coach an athlete who just moves better and has got better body awareness that makes them much more coachable and that is our benefit and we only learn those things by challenging ourselves to move in different ways and testing our our kinesthetic awareness. I vividly on that sort of line I vividly remember uh, probably borderline annoying the uh, coaches I was interning under when I was first at the English Institute of Sport with Paralympic table tennis and I was so obsessed with this idea of transfer of training and i remember saying oh how's this help how's this bench press helping him round the table tennis table and i every question about how's this helping them in the boxing ring and they said look the gym is for getting strong and the sport will then take care of itself and you know that maybe is oversimplification but the point still stands that it's very easy to think that oh well the strongest athlete will be the best one or the most conditioned athlete will be the best one when as you said it is just a a small cog in a very big wheel mm. uh, one thing i want to talk about now is something we spoke about offline and that's the potential for calisthenics within the physical education curriculum um now this is a deliberately loaded question with many different rabbit holes so you you go down whatever rabbit hole or avenue you want so with obesity increasing obviously strength to weight ratios in kids decreasing and the amount of sporting opportunities if you will that also decrease when you don't move well or you're not strong relative to body weight. Uh, you don't have decent strength to body weight ratios. How do you see calisthenics potentially providing the answer to that solution? And how would you frame it if you were in a school and you were pitching calisthenics as part of a wider um, scale curriculum improvement? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of rabbit holes in that question that I could go down. I'll try to skirt across the, a few of them um should kids be able to hang i would say so like if you took if you took a class of kids now and asked them to do 10 meters of monkey bars versus the same number of kids 15 years ago i think the outcome would be significantly different of those people that could could successfully complete that that task um hanging from a just a just a just a i don't know i want to say basic life skill like i i i've one of the rabbit holes I'm trying to avoid so desperately is just a survival. When Jack and I first started, we talked about strength training for survival in the urban jungle. Like, can you actually save your life if you needed to be able to? And, and it's this concept of being strong in the world, not in the gym. 
I don't really care if someone can back squat 200 kilos if they if their single leg stand stability is absolute garbage. Like it's I've seen strong athletes who are awful on one leg, um, and most sports and most of life is often conducted or functional activities in life are often conducted on one leg. Um, I think there's a, there's there's a, there's, uh, there's something around that of just going hanging is a basic skill that we should be able to do. We should be able to climb. That's a basic human human skill. And the reality is that our world now means that we don't have to do these things because we can just pop around the corner to the shop to get food rather than having to, to go and do it as we, we used to have done. But as a result of that, we are losing the capacity, potential opportunity that we have with our human movement system to actually maintain the things that keeps it healthy. And this can sound like quite a romantic idea and you go, well, yeah, it's fine. Tim. I'm quite happy going around to Sainsbury's on a Tuesday evening to get my dinner. I don't really need to go and climb a tree anymore. But the, the thing is, we have to do something to sustain the system and what it's designed to move like. Otherwise, it just gets broken and in pain. Um, we see that all the time. With like You mold along the lines of stress. So if we sit down a lot, then we just get better at sitting down. The body is highly adaptable and it's highly lazy at most of the time. We have to push it to, to break out of these patterns because, yeah, we get good at sitting down. But then you want to go on a windsurfing holiday or whatever it is. And you've just sat down for 60 hours a week or more. And, and now all of a sudden your back hurts. Like that's not, that's not where, where we need to be. So these things, are, I, I really resonate with your point around enjoyment of, of life and activity. Kids will, to my understanding, and not being a specialist in this area, but from what I've seen and from my own experience, kids enjoy things, doing things that they are good at. So if we can teach them basic physical literacy, then sport and activity and well-being becomes more enjoyable because they just don't feel completely ill-equipped to engage in it and therefore may well adhere to it. So then we start creating a generation of people who have got some movement skills. So going into a fitness class or to the gym or playing a sport, whatever it might be, kind of feels normal. They can run so they can go. They've got like they've got half decent running mechanics so they can go to a park run and run a 5K and get some enjoyment out of it. And then we start tackling these conversations that we're having about inactivity, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, strength to weight ratio. Um, so I think where for me, where I would place calisthenics is yeah, there's all this kind of sexy stuff that you can do in the, in the PE curriculum, for example. But I'd wind it all back and I'd just be like, can you just basically manage your own body weight? Can you hang? You don't even need to be able to do a pull up to start off with, but can you just hang? Can you can you do some ground based movements and we can start to add some strength based elements to that if we want to? Can you double leg squat? Can you do a single leg squat? Like people will get a little bit kind of sensitive about pistols because of the range of movement. Why not? Like we have no problems sitting in a deep squat position, like backside on the floor. All a pistol is is a single leg version of that same movement pattern. It's not dangerous to be in that level of dorsiflexion or knee flexion. It's if you have appropriate mobility, stability, and strength through ranges of movement. And that's where I think calisthenics is, has another opportunity of it exposes you to range of movement, which we should actually be able to maintain and work through. It's just that we don't necessarily need to back squat 150 kilos through those ranges. But it doesn't mean that those are dangerous ranges if done with appropriate load. So doing Cossacks and whatever it is. And, and the, the game within, within physical literacy, within this sort of stuff, is, is exactly that of, of, of gamification. Make it fun put people in ground-based movement patterns and get them to play crab football or whatever it might be. Like it's still that you might look at it going, yeah, that's, that went out with the eighties team, but that's when I grew up and we used to go to scouts and play crab, crab football. But what are you doing? You're doing like shoulder depression. You're doing extension. Like you're doing some bridge based work. Like it's coordination. Why not have that sort of stuff? Why do we, why would we limit people? Because exercise in a lot of realms and in, it's just become quite, quite boring.
Well, funny enough, one of the uh, a couple of questions that I jotted down off the back of that is um, we, we kind of mentioned offline about how S&C opinions will be so hypocritical. And uh, I mean, I suppose one of the hypocritical opinions I'm keen to avoid myself is on one hand saying, oh, calisthenics provides us more of an answer because we're focusing on movement versus say a sport-based model of PE. But then I don't want to do a calisthenics lesson for kids where it becomes, right, here's this progression, here's this regression. You're going to do five sets of, I don't know, five seconds of frog stand, but you guys will do it with your feet on the floor because you're not as good. Or um, So that was going to be my next question as to how do we avoid calisthenics just becoming another part of, I suppose, an academy-style strength and conditioning setup, if that makes sense. Yeah, so do you mean in terms of like individualising an approach to in, in a group setting? or I guess, I mean, if I give you a specific example from a lesson I taught uh, last week, that'll probably highlight what I'm saying. Um, so again, it was a very much a think-on-your-feet lesson because the kids had to be rushed inside because it was chucking it down with rain. And as part of my uh, warm-up, we did... Uh, a movement stolen from GMB Fitness. Uh, they call it the monkey. You guys call it the side hop. And in the way that I was coaching it, uh, the coaching cue I use is imagine you're a terrible driver. So one hand on the steering wheel, and then you've got one hand down, the other hand down. Um, and of course, the kids whose brains can get that and whose brains can deal with the hand crossing the midline, they will just go one, two with the hands, three, four with the feet, and they'll finish. Whereas people who've never been exposed to that kind of movement problem we did say half a lap of the hall and they, who, those who couldn't get it, it was clear they couldn't get it. And they were waiting for every, uh, sorry, they yeah. were well behind. And I was thinking, this is where the sort of adult model of regressions and progressions doesn't really work with kids because you've got one girl who's never seen the movement pattern in her life and can't get to grips with it. Whereas those with a gymnastics background, dance background, they've finished and they're just sat aside waiting for somebody else to finish so how do we avoid i guess that kind of scenario yeah i think that's um i mean there's always regressions and progressions right you could you could go through a number of different options that you've got in that pattern to try and help people to, to wind it back um one thing that we've talked about in the past is we would have like a, a p1 and r1 so we'd have like a, here's your main exercise um here's your progression and here's your regression and let people kind of self-organize within that to a certain degree and then your job as the coach is to facilitate the different movement that's happening in a group now i appreciate that when you're working with kids that it's actually probably easier to be having them all doing the same thing at the same time from a group control perspective um but i mean it's, it's finding those progressions and those movements where you've got probably easier things to to be able to to occupy a group with i think i would look at it and, and just be like if you've got a group of kids who are doing really well at that movement what's my next progression how can i give them a little bit more something to entertain themselves with it a bit of complexity or something like fun that they can have a go at while i go over here and spend some time just trying to coach this group of, of people who might be struggling with the movement um so probably more of a group management thing and just having a couple of ideas of regressions and progressions in the locker or you kind of play it safe and stick within um simpler movements where a regression could be a little bit straight more straightforward but the main movement pattern potentially looks the same so an example of that would be like the side hops can you do like a mirroring based drill going left and right so you might just pair people up because they're now going to en entertain each other for a few minutes while you that buys you some time to go and spend some time with those guys that aren't um that aren't able to kind of nail down that first progression but 
Um, yeah, I'm not a PE teacher, so I've got very little context in terms of, of how difficult it is to, to kind of manage that group. But I guess when I stand in front of a group of, of young athletes, they are there to be trained. So you probably have a little bit of an affordance of you guys need to go and get on with this and I'm going to go and spend some time over here. Yeah, yeah. And funny, uh, I'm trying to think of, it might have been in writing my youth athlete ebook that I'm working on at the moment. It might have been something I heard in a podcast but it was talking about how movement looks different within an academy set up with strength and conditioning. If you have the carrot of look as a strength and conditioning coach, you need to listen to me because I'm going to put you on the right physical path or I will speak to the technical coach and the athletes or the kids have to be seen to be following it versus a PE curriculum where, yeah, they might do it because the teachers told them to, but also, as you said, there's a greater contextual layer of, I suppose you've got it almost earn their buy-in rather than saying to a kid look if your attitude's not on point then we can have a chat with your parents or the technical coach or whatever um we also mentioned about where calisthenics might fit in the wider scheme of things and what i liked about our off-air chat was as soon as i mentioned it to you you said yes we've got calisthenics but that's more the vehicle the other things we can work towards are stuff like a growth mindset um The next question I have comes from a previous podcast guest, Ross Williams, and his question is, uh, when coaching calisthenics to youth athletes, um, how do you provide the psychological safety that comes with, for example, potentially a kid falling on their face or not wanting to do a movement in front of the whole class or any of the stuff that comes with coaching kids bodyweight movements for the first time? Yeah, that's, I mean, that doesn't change whether, I mean, we could do a workshop and we would have the same psychological issues of people coming in and not being confident to try something nervous about falling over, like in a frog stand and, and hitting their face on the floor. And I think you've also got to remember that like, we often kind of context that in, in the youth population, but adults bring way more baggage on that psychological thing. They're way less willing to try sometimes and they are more afraid of failure, um, which we know. Um so I think it's about creating an environment which is about play. Like we don't ever sort of in a playground, kids aren't often afraid of failing unless it might be to go like go back to the monkey bars example. But in a lot of play is just freedom to move and there are no expectations to play in a certain way. And if someone is playing chase or whatever, for example, um, and they fall over, like it's not a massive like that's not a massive deal. Like that's just part of the game. Um, so I think movement and stuff is we have to be allowed, we have to take an, an approach where as long as it is safe from a coaching perspective and if they're worried about falling forward and hitting their face on the floor, well, let's change the environment and give them a mat in front of them or a cushion or a pillow or something which kind of makes them feel a little bit safer so that they, they, they go back to that, that neural thing of the brain allowing them to try. But one of the most valuable things you're going to do in calisthenics is if you can re- reflect on your own practice or the performance um, is that by falling further f- too far forward in the frog stand, it actually tells you how far too far is. Now the brain has context. So it can then at that point go, well, I don't want to lean that far forward because I fall over when I do that. So I'm going to try and do this, but not lean forward that much. Or with some help of some coaching cues or whatever, we start to change hand position, elbow position, whatever it might be. But I think we have to allow a certain level of safe failure um, in skill acquisition because there is the brain isn't interested in perfect skills. It's it's interested in having a catalogue of movements which are generally applicable to a number of different situations, and then it will tweak that gross mover pattern based on the scenario that it's it's um, it's looking to to operate within. 
So having variability, falling over, trying it in different ways, like not being afraid to fail, those are all things that we should be encouraging kids that it's okay. And we don't laugh at them when they fall on their face. We actually celebrate it because well done for trying. Like it's, as long as it's safe and we're not going to get hurt, and I've never seen anybody properly hurt themselves in a frog stand because the brain's pretty good at putting the hand out in front of them to cushion the fall. Um, rarely have you seen anybody just go literally nose first into the ground. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's all about environment and all about confidence and encouraging and inspiring kids just to play, have fun with it. And we often use that phrase that like we'll, we'll, we'll show a set of drills and we'll be like, have a play. And there'll be points of that where I'm walking around, around the room and I'm going to go and work with some people. But there's kids or, or there's people part of the workshop who are just getting opportunity to not to have a go without being watched or they can move themselves to the back of the group and have a go. But I think it's just, yeah, giving that, creating that environment where they've got confidence to, to try and we don't criticize them if they fail. It's actually let's celebrate it because it's not a bad thing as long as it's, as I say, as long as it's safe. Yeah. And to be fair, I like the point about you said earlier about the kids entertaining each other with the side hops. Um, one of my pet hates in PE, and I'm sure I was guilty of it in my early career, is uh, any kind of drills where you've got a line where basically everyone watches everyone else. Um, I mean, I recently did a FA teachers course and they just talk, talked about tweaking activities because actually you're setting kids up to fail and the kids who are more reluctant are going to be even more reluctant when there's 20 other kids watching them practice a skill that they don't feel uh, too confident in. So that to me makes a hell of a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's all, that's just, it's just the environment, isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, just in, I just got two or three closing questions. Um, one of the questions that I ask everyone on the podcast is if you could observe one coach with, their athletes who would you choose to observe and why <laughs> great question um i would love to go and watch nick, nick winkleman um do a session big on skill acquisition and big on the language of, of coaching um and i think there's there's i've got i've actually got his book the language of coaching on my desk which i haven't started yet um but i would love to go and watch nick coach interesting background coming up through um athletes performance exos now um at the iru rugby in, in ireland um yeah, he's a guy whose work I've followed for some time. I'd love to go and see him do a session. Yeah, and even with Nick Winkle, even preparing for this podcast, uh, I was trying to get my head around some of the skill acquisition literature and ended up diving into some notes I took that he did for the English Institute for Sport a few years ago. And he's probably one of the few coaches that talks about it in a language where I'm like, yeah, I actually understand that now. Whereas, uh, for example, and again, no disrespect to Franz Bosch, but I know it's I know some coaches can easily get lost when trying to understand his message, which is yeah. very similar. Um, if anybody wants to read that book, I would that that his, his strength training and coordination book is much easier to understand if you look at it through the through the lens of a closed skill. So when I read it, looking at sport as a as an open skill pattern. Um, it, it was hard to read when I looked at it through the lens of a handstand or something and then scaled it out from there. It made a lot more sense to me. Yeah. Well, um, oh God, his name, name alludes me now, which is gonna, um, gonna really annoy me, but some, uh, powerlifting coach whose name alludes me, but he spoke about tractors and fluctuators in yeah. regards to powerlifting. And he said, it's much easier when you think of, for example, a squat as any time the hips go below the knees and what is going to remain the same regardless of what variation we pick and where are the intricacies going to lie because as you said sometimes as strength and conditioning coaches we love getting obsessed with details that 
in reality make no difference. It's like, oh, why did you go for incline bench rather than uh, regular bench? And yeah, yeah. Unless I'm going to stop, stop walking there. <laughs> um, in terms of a recommended resource, I'd be very intrigued whether it's business related, movement science related, or anything really. Oh gosh, I'm a um, yeah. Um, it depends. Like, I'm, I just think I'm. A, I love books, which is probably a stupid Same. statement to make. But I go into a bookshop or I go on Amazon. I'm like, I could just buy books and and just read through them. And I'm um, so I think there's. I, I'm rather than point to a specific resource, I haven't really got one that I would say that's where I get all my information from. Um, I would encourage coaches to read stuff which is going to make a difference to their practice now um, and then a little bit of stuff which is going to help them to make practice in the future. But um, it amazes me when coaches are going hard into reading about the technicalities of an what like ankle function and atherokinematics or whatever or force platforms when they don't coach people who need that level of information that have access to a force platform it's good knowledge to have don't get me wrong and, and i could probably do more of that sort of stuff but um i'm quite big on just picking out books that are um are relevant to what i'm trying to do now and another thing i would encourage people to do is is test philosophies and and pull things together like there, there's a certain need still within our field of picking out how different schools of thought actually interact movement is not simple um and when you start getting down to the detail of it um like i've got a book on my desk now another one that's around just understanding more about the fascial system it's not something we talk about a lot but it governs a huge amount when it comes to movement quality um, and how does that interact with the neural system for example so yeah read read wide read broad pull things together create ideas philosophies test them um, and just read what excites you. It's much easier to read books that you really get passionate about, I think. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I, I normally download a sample chapter and if I find that it's a page turner, I'll carry on. Um, but sometimes it just depends when you interact with a certain book. Uh, yeah. And finally, if you could have one key message uh, to listeners of this podcast, whether it's PE teachers, strength and conditioning coaches, parents, whatever, uh, what would that message be? Uh, embrace play and read around it and understand it as it's a the, the science of play there's a book that i've got which i haven't actually read yet but I've, I've dug a little bit into it by dr stuart brown um called entitled play i can't it's probably got a subtitle to it um but it's a it's a it's something which we are i think in our modern day lives lacking and it's something that we're really passionate about and when you start to bring play back into movement or exercise workouts training whatever you want to call it the effects of that are, are quite profound and addictive. And what that's ultimately what we want people to have a healthy addiction to exercise. Um, so we need to make it fun and giving people the, the freedom to play is massively liberating rather than going into a gym and just seeing structured repetition of machines or the same old thing all the time. It's um, people will be they're like, they'll see what me and Jack are doing in the gym. Maybe they're like, I could never do that in my gym. Well, just I encourage you to just just try because what you'll find is after you do that is that quote I forget who who wrote the verse, but it's about by shining your own light gives other people the confidence to shine theirs. And there was no one doing calisthenics in our gym when we started; everyone laughed at us. But then now, if you go down to that gym, there's a whole area of the gym set aside for calisthenics, and lots of people are doing it. Um, so yeah, don't be afraid that people laugh at you if you fall over on your face when you do a frog stand because that's what we did when we first started. Just laugh about it and go and try something else.
<laughs> I'm only laughing because I know I know it's not originally from Coach Carter, but that's all I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, finally, where can people reach out to you or find out more about yours and Jacko's work if they're interested? Yeah, so schoolofcalisthenics.com is our website. Um, it's got a links on there to Virtual Classroom, which is a training program platform, which you can go and find out all of our our different movement-specific and general bodyweight training calisthenics workout programs. Um, you can, we're on across all socials. You find us at School of, of Calisthenics um, YouTube channels. There's tons. We've got so much free content out there. People just want to go and get a flavor of what it's like. And even on our virtual classroom, if you people can on a, on a monthly subscription, they can get seven days free, no contract, cancel any time, come in, have a look around, play around with it, see what you like, and um, hopefully it'll be a valuable use, resource for either your own training or the athletes or students that you're working with. Perfect. And uh, as I said before, I think if anyone you were mentioned about the type of audience that you're kind of catering to and that they have to have an interest, if you've got an interest, honestly, check out the free resources. I mean, I'm biased because I bought a couple of your eBooks and subscribe to the virtual classroom, but you will learn so much. And even if you don't want to spend a penny, I mean, this is terrible advertising for you, but the the stuff I've learned from you guys, even from watching your free stuff uh, with a foundation of strength, the level of coaching is first class. So if you want to learn about calisthenics or how the human body works, then check out the virtual classroom, check out the, uh, the content that school of calisthenics are putting out. I can't recommend it enough. Very kind of you, Todd. Thank you very much. My Good little pleasure. pitch for me there. My <laughs> pleasure. Um, thanks a lot for, I mean, I was going to say a Sunday afternoon because I'm so used to doing this podcast. <laughs> weekend, but uh, just want to say thanks very much for giving up your time, Tim. Absolute pleasure. Enjoy the chat. Thanks for having Thank you for listening to episode number 30 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, Tim Stevenson. If you've enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a review via your preferred platform and share this with a coach, teacher, or parent that you feel will benefit from it. If you want to go one step further and support the podcast, or you simply want access to the exclusive educational strength conditioning content I've been releasing, then you can do this by heading over to my Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you again in the next episode.